I enjoy reading. And I have, I have friends who devour books. I'm a slow reader, so I don't devour them. But on the other side, I have some friends that struggle to read one book in a year. They're just not readers at all. I don't know where I sit, probably somewhere in the middle. And uh, if you took me to any bookshop, whether it would be a large superstore or something very small, um, inevitably, sooner or later, I will always end up in the same section. I'll walk past the history books, I'll walk past all the fiction stuff, I'll walk past the philosophy stuff, the theology, Christian ministry, and I'll end up in the same spot, biography. Now, I've bought some of my favorites to show you. Now, the ashes has started, and why not begin with a local hero? Not very often a Launceston boy uh, will end up writing his own book and publishing it for the world. Ricky Ponting. What about Mark Webber? I'm a racing fan. I like Formula One. An Aussie hero who never really won the Formula One. He, ran, he, he won races, but didn't really uh, end up at the, at the top spot. But a good story indeed. Of course, James Morrison, the trumpet player. He's, been, uh, he's, he's a friend of Door of Hope. He's been here a number of times. And um, I had the, this autobiography. I lent it to someone. If you are here today, <laughs> I cannot remember who I lent it to. And I knew James Morrison was coming, so I bought another one. This is like a used one that I found, and I got him to sign it, so you can't have it. <laughs> you know, in recent times, we, uh, as in we've just... Um, uh, I suppose the 50th anniversary of the landing on the moon. And this is a, a, a story by Chris Hadfield. He's a Canadian. And he tells his story about the process that he went through to end up on the International Space Station. Great read indeed, if you're into that sort of thing. I've always been captivated by the experiences of others, and I've discovered that one of my personal values is story, narrative. I believe that to be human is to be a storyteller. Everyone has a story worth sharing. And story transcends culture, it transcends time, but there is something more significant. And for us, you and I are part of a master story, a grand narrative, if you like, that involves a creator God who longs for us to know him, and he also wants us to get to know each other. So I have a few more autobiographies to show you. What would it look like if we went back in time? Maybe this is more my parents' generation, and this is a book by Melody Green on the life of his, um, her husband, Keith Green. And this is around about the 70s. And um, just this last week, it was 37 years ago that Keith, with two of his children, died in a plane crash, surprisingly, unexpectedly. We can go even further back in time. What about the story of uh, Second World War? This is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German who would end up being martyred for the sake of Christ. And um, is this further back in time for me? My Dutch grandfather was um, prisoner of war, and my English grandfather fought for the Allies. But that's as far as I go. I don't know any of their stories because they chose not to tell them. We can keep going back in time, even still. What about to the 1500s? 
when a man by the name of Martin Luther would pin 95 theses to the church door at Wittenberg to start a conversation about the things that he saw. And this is a very, very uh, well-known book if you want to study his life, Here I Stand, which is the phrase that he uh, gave uh, towards the end of his life to those that were accusing him. But 1,500, that's 500 years ago. The data around that for me is very loose. I don't know what a lot of the information was about, so we have to rely on others. And we can keep going back in time. And today we're going to do just that. Over the next four Sundays, we're diving into the biography of the greatest influencer, that's after Jesus himself, the greatest influencer of our Christian story. And his name is Saul of Tarsus. He's also called Paul, which I'll explain a little bit later. So why would we want to study uh, this man? In Paul, we're drawn to his commitment, his passion, his grand realization that God's vision of Christ for the world included not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles. Now, if you're a Christ-centered person here this morning, then you know that Paul's writings gives, give us legs to understanding how to live as a Christian community in the world and for the world. Now, if you're a new Christian or you're here today and you're just exploring Christianity, then I invite you to spend time with a man who was dramatically transformed and dedicated the rest of his life training others, leading others, challenging them, discipling them, teaching them, encouraging them. You may know Paul. Maybe you admire him. You may even say that you love this man. Maybe you envy him. Maybe you fear him or you get angry at him for some of the things that he said. We memorize his words. Many have suffered like him. And at one point in one of his letters, he said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I brought along his biography also. Do you want to see it? This is it. This is about 20,000 words right here. This is the, the book of Acts. And I printed it on 36 sheets. And that's the extent of his biography, if you like. Now, if you're a publisher, if you want to publish a book, uh, the large publishers won't even look at your manuscript unless it's at least 65, 70,000 words. And so what I'm addressing here is the fact that there's a historical gap. When Ponting writes about scoring a century at Old Trafford against England, we know a wide range of facts and data that allows us to paint a fairly clear picture of what that looked like. No doubt about it. When Luther pinned 95 Theses to the church door, we understand the event, the story, but we lack a whole range of elements. We know far less information because that gap between him and us is much wider. And so when we get to Paul 2,000 years ago, it's even wider still. 
when there are many unknowns, we risk, this is the temptation for us, we superimpose our life, our worldview from the 21st century onto a first century Palestine context. It's a very, very dangerous thing to do. But thankfully, Paul is not completely unknown to us. And uh, when we're looking at his life, we have a range of sources, and you can see it on the screen. There are seven letters bearing his name, and these are undisputed. This is uh, authorship that is not questioned. We have Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, one of the letters to the Thessalonians, and then Philemon. But there are six other letters, and there is some conversation, if you like, regarding the authorship of these particular ones. They have Paul's name, but there are a range of other questions. This is 2 Thessalonians, Colossians, Ephesians, 1 and 2 Timothy, and Titus. We also have the book of Acts, which I've just printed, and we also have historical documents. We have uh, things like manuscripts or inscriptions, coins, that sort of thing that help us paint a picture of where Paul was living. Now, you don't have to be, we don't have to be alarmed by the, the questions around authorship. This is just part of the deal when science meets interpretation. It's an art as well. And so when there is a new technology uh, and there, when there is old manuscripts at play, there are always questions that we ask of the text. And this is just part and parcel of being involved in this, uh, in this work, men and women all over the world. And it's okay to ask questions of the text. Because over the coming weeks, we're going through, uh, we're going to spend more time in Scripture, I'll leave those for others that are coming after me, Steve, next week. Um, I want to just whet our appetite, if you like, with one of these archaeological uh, inscriptions. And this is called um, Galio's Inscription. And you can see on the photo, uh, it's a collection of nine uh, fragments of a letter that was discovered in the 1900s in Delphi in Greece. And it's also known as, as the Delphi inscription. It goes by both names. Now, this letter was written by the Roman emperor Claudius around 50 AD. And this next image shows you a close-up of uh, one of these uh, fragments. Now, the text itself is important because it mentions proconsul Galio. And this is very important when we're trying to piece together Paul's chronology. Because when we get to the book of Acts in chapter 18, verses 12 to 17, we have this passage. When Galio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul. This is our man and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Galio said to them, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be judge of such things. So he drove them off. Then the crowd there turned to Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul. And Galio showed no concern whatsoever. This cross-reference provides compelling evidence for dating Paul's activity 
and his ministry. But before we learn about Saul himself, we need to pay attention to the world in which he lived. And um, this world was known as the Greco-Roman world. And uh, we focus specifically on the Mediterranean, what they call the Mediterranean basin. And uh, if you travel Europe, you've got Spain, and then you make your way around Italy, Greece, some of the islands, and you make your way to Turkey, and then eventually you get to the nation of Israel. All that surrounded uh, by this, this basin, not surrounded, but um, uh, there's this amount of water, the Mediterranean Sea, and that's where we find ourselves. Alexander the Great had triumphed in the land 30, uh, 300 years before. And this resulted in the Hellenization of this basin. Now, Hellenization is, is just simply the word to describe this Greek um, influence across the region. So you might have Greek language. You would have Greek ideas, education, philosophy, religion, politics, and values all flourished wherever Alexander had been. Now, coin Greek. This is the language that was spoken. The everyday common Greek was the language of business and commerce. And actually, our New Testament is written in this language. And uh, Jewish communities that had dispersed all over this region, uh, they're described as the diaspora. So these are the Jews that belonged to the Jewish community but were not present in the original land, Jerusalem and Israel. And so these Men and women, these families, were not immune to Hellenization. And so they thought in Greek ways. They did business in Greek ways. And they even read their own scripture, their own Hebrew text that was translated into Greek. They would read the Greek translation of this scripture. And so we've got to understand that Greek culture didn't um, superimpose onto the local culture. It just... It kind of came together is probably a better description. And I want to talk about some of the key things that we would have seen around this time, particularly around the people. One of the first ones is this idea of the group identification. This idea for us as Westerners of being individuals was just not a concept in this world. To be a self, to be an individual in this land meant that you're a part of a community. You're a part of a family, you're a part of a city, you're a part of a region. There was no concept that I stand as me in this land. I stand because I'm part of this community. The second element that was at play in this land is this idea of honour and shame. So uh, the, the, there were status indicators, uh, where you were educated, how much wealth you had, one's family, um, how good you were with rhetoric, uh, political connections. And you would leverage that to succeed in life and actually put others uh, to shame. Hierarchy is an important feature of this. And imagine the Eiffel Tower, uh, the structure of the Eiffel Tower. At the very top, you have the, the elite, those of the ruling class, and it's a very narrow stem until it starts to widen at the base. The, the very bottom is where all the peasants were, but there was this authority structure that was at play. And actually, in the family, this concept of hierarchy highlights also the, the idea of patriarchy. So in a Greco-Roman world, if you're a male, you had a greater chance to succeed than if you're a female. 
So women were the, uh, the ones that were left at home to care for the family, to manage the household, perhaps even manage some slaves. And uh, the educated women were those that were the rich women, the elite. And uh, Greek gods, obviously there were female gods, so the, the idea of um, uh, authority by women was not uncommon. And some Jewish women also found themselves very involved in the community, in the Jewish communities, in the synagogues, and uh, other uh, events that would be happening. But let's not take it away from the fact that if you're a male, you had a greater chance of a great education, uh, of future uh, possibilities, and um, uh, increasing your wealth. You managed your universe, which was your wife, your family, your slaves, they were your possession. Another element that was at play in this world was slavery. And uh, to be a slave meant that you belonged to another. And you lived to do the other's bidding without the right to refuse. Slaves were used and abused. And unlike our American history when it comes to slavery, um, this slavery system in this world was not based on race. So um, if you were conquered, no matter where you came from, you would become a slave if that's what the authorities deem necessary. Um, you were born into slavery. If your parents were slaves, you would be a slave also. And freedom was ultimately the goal for all slaves. And this would depend on whether the master felt generous enough to release you and to give you freedom and in some cases, in the elite, in, the, in those that wanted to demonstrate to others how virtuous they were, uh, they would release their slaves every now and again, just as an image uh, projection of how good they were. Now, by 30 BC, so this is 30 years before Christ is born, um, a new era began and that was the Roman Empire started to take shape. And uh, this is why we call this world the Greco-Roman world. There's a melting pot of ideas here, clashes, authority, struggle. And so the Greek superpower took a back seat as Augustus, the Roman sa saviour, brought peace to Rome. And under this emperor, Rome's power spread in all directions. Roman law, Roman values, Roman gods, Roman roads, Roman coins spread everywhere. Now, we romanticize about the Roman Empire. TV helps us do this. Books help us do this. Um, I grew up in a Roman town, and there are some images on the screen um, of, uh, of a walled um, city um, the, the, the next image is, uh, so this is where I grew up, Talavera de la Reina. That's an old, it's, it's probably built a little bit later uh, than the Roman time, but this is in the same district. You move to the next photo, and this is the Roman bridge. This is called uh, Puente Viejo, which simply means the old bridge. I don't know what the original name was then, but there's a, there's a centurion just having a bit of a paddle in the water. And I think there's a couple of helicopters there for some reason. <laughs> Now, as a family, we spent a lot of time exploring some of these places. We would walk uh, some of the aqueducts, and uh, the, the next two images of the aqueduct is, um, is not in, in my town. It's in a place called Segovia, which is only a few hours away. 
And there are lots of aqueducts all over the land. And uh, also Roman roads. So uh, there's an intricate network of highways in Spain. And uh, we would often uh, just go for a drive, park the car, and just start walking along these roads. Huge, wide roads are made of stones, just laid one stone after another. And uh, these go for, mi- for miles and miles. Now, um, this so-called peace that I'm talking about, we would talk about in Spanish as la paz romana, this Roman peace um, had a dark side. Yes, uh, Augustus brought peace to the region and actually expanded um, the Roman Empire. And it would only be really Hitler in the Second World War, First and Second World War, where Germany would try and do what the Roman Empire had done many, many years before. But this peace had a very dark side. And um, the Roman Empire expanded through conquest. It expanded through suppression and intimidation. So picture this. The Romans invaded and enslaved. The Romans managed the conquered people by shifting them around from place to place. They formed new colonies. And Tarsus would have experienced some of this bumpiness along the way, Tarsus being the birthplace of Saul. Um, They formed new colonies and they colonized old cities as their own. The Romans imposed taxes to maintain the empire. They had a powerful deterrent to ensure those who threatened the peace knew the consequences. Do you know what the deterrent was? Crucifixion. Now, Romans didn't invent crucifixion, but they certainly perfected it. And crucifixion was not only to inflict punishment and pain on the criminal, but it was a very, very powerful visual cue. There are texts, Roman texts, that describe the, I suppose, the atrocity of the crucifixion. Whether that was a good thing or a bad thing, uh, they still did it anyway because it was so powerful. And actually, uh, there would be nothing more un-Roman than to honour a man crucified by the imperial authorities. This is a public spectacle. Families would gather to watch these things take place. And on that note, Roman citizen, to be a Roman citizen, meant to belong to a large family. The Greek word is oikos. And so the, the Roman family, the family was the engine room of the empire. The cities were made up of families and slaves and citizens and non-citizens of freed persons, which were the the former slaves, the poor and the wealthy. And it's no wonder that in Galatians, Paul says these words. He would eventually say, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all in Christ. So for the Romans, though, love of honor was the aim of the game. And so the pursuit of honor, how would we describe honor? The admiration of one's peers created a fierce and competitive society. They accumulated honor for the empire and for Rome, for their city and for their family, and of course, for themselves. And so, after all that, we come to this man called Saul of Tarsus. 
Tarsus is in the province, was in the province of Cilicia, and you can see the map behind me. This is, a, this is Google Maps, and uh, Tarsus is still there today uh, by the same name. It's on the southern part of Turkey. And now we don't know the date of his birth, but probable that it was between 5 and 6 AD, so slightly younger than Jesus himself. Um, different people would argue that um, Saul and Jesus never really crossed paths. They're in really different, actually, land altogether. Uh, to the Philippian church, he said about himself, if anyone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, he was faultless. This is him describing himself before his encounter with Christ. So like a good Jew, he would have spoken Hebrew. He might have also spoken Aramaic, and he obviously also spoke Greek. He came from a God-fearing family, and his two names was a common practice of the day. So Saul would have been a reference, perhaps, if he recognized himself part of the tribe of Benjamin, he probably was named Saul after uh, their own king, King Saul, a long time before that. Um, but his Greek name was Paul, and maybe they named him Paul um, also because it sounded similar to Saul. We don't know. This is not unusual. Even today, my mum went to Spain. That's where we grew up, and she had two names. She left Australia as Heather and arrived in Spain as Elena. And uh, that's because you can't, uh, some names you can't translate directly. So you have two names that you carry with you. So he was a Pharisee. Uh, like his father, and as a young man, he was educated by a respected rabbi called Gamaliel, and this is evidenced in the book of Acts. So as a Jew in the Greco-Roman world, he knew he belonged to a different story. Now, um, one where a nation that he was a part of, Saul's nation, uh, was chosen by Yahweh. Now, he would have heard the stories over and over again of Yahweh, this name that none of them would dare speak out loud because it was so holy. They would use other names for God to describe God. And he knew the story of his own people uh, uh, making a covenant with Yahweh or Yahweh making a covenant with Abraham. He would have understood the implications of God establishing um, his law through Moses and how this adherence to the law meant being made right before Yahweh as people. Now, he would have heard stories of Phineas, for example. That's Aaron's grandson in the Old Testament, whose zeal had appeased God's anger when Israel had disobeyed the law. He would have heard about Elijah's zeal and perhaps wondered if he, too, one day when he grew up, could take on the responsibility as a Pharisee of enforcing the law. Over time, Saul would come to understand that being a Pharisee meant living for two things at least. The first one is zeal for the law, and that was both the written law and the oral law. 
By the time, so we start with 10 commandments in Moses, by the time Jesus came along, there were probably over 600 laws that they were responsible for enforcing. And the second one, so the first one being zeal for the law, the second one being commitment to purify Israel, commitment to the purity of Israel. So living in Greco-Roman world meant that this, his task was to ensure the Jewish heritage remained intact and that the law was adhered to, why? For the sake of righteousness. If you wanted to be right with God, these are the rules that you had to abide by. So Pharisees believed, and this includes Saul, that they were protectors and promoters of the law. And they were protecting um, Israel from divine judgment. So keeping Israel holy and pure by keeping her in line with the law of Moses meant opposing any of the, any of the threats to this activity. And so the priority was to keep the Jews away from the Gentiles. We've just learned that this was not all that possible because they had to live together in this world, but they would practice certain things, circumcision. They would stick to certain diets. They would stick to their own calendar, even though they were living with other neighbors who lived slightly differently. So Acts records the stoning of Stephen, Stephen being a Christian, uh, a new believer, and he was compelled by the Holy Spirit to tell the story of the Messiah, and that resulted in, in, in his stoning and his death. And who was there to watch it? Who was there to oversee it? Saul himself. So Saul sought his righteousness and justification, this divine approval in such zeal. So in the weeks to come, we're going to discover that Paul was converted. He had an encounter with Christ himself. But even though his life was transformed, he remained zealous. He remained a Jew. He remained a Roman citizen. This time, however, his identity, who he was, and salvation were not placed in the law but on Christ. And so God would use this man with his qualities to serve his purposes um, in spreading the gospel throughout the world. And so one of his final letters uh, was to the believers in Rome, and he would say this about what was once his own zeal. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. This knowledge that Paul is talking about is found in the life and death of Jesus. He knew that ultimately he could do nothing to save himself. No amount of rule following was going to make him right with God. Jesus, this Messiah, took upon himself the charge that lay against humanity because of sin. And he fulfilled the law so that we wouldn't have to. 
So here this morning, you have a redeemed story. I don't know what that story is for you, but I do know that the reason it's redeemed is because of what Jesus did on the cross. And as we gather around this uh, um, communion table, so to speak, we remember another story. This is not Saul's story. This is the story of a man named Jesus who didn't grow up in Turkey, modern-day Turkey. He grew up in an old, small village town called Bethlehem, Galilee, and he would subsequently move to Jerusalem, and he had a lot to say about the law. He not only said it, but he would eventually, ultimately, live it out by dying on the cross and then come into life again so that we wouldn't have to abide the law anymore. We would find it in him. And so the story that he told his disciples was, I'm going to go away. And uh, when I do this, I want you to do something for me. Every time you gather, I want you to remember me. I want you to remember my body, which was broken so that you could live. And I want you to take some bread, or in our case, it's a biscuit, to remember this. And I also want you to drink some grape juice, some wine. And I want you to remember the blood that was sacrificed because that blood is significant for the atoning of our sins. And so 2,000 years later, we do this still today. What's your story? Are you willing to live a redeemed story like Saul experienced? If I were to go to a bookshop now, uh, large or small, if I were to go to the biography section and if I were to pick out your story, what would it say about Jesus? So now is the time for us as believers to, to gather our thoughts around communion, to remember Jesus, remember his sacrifice and make ourselves right with him, not because of anything that we've done, but because of everything that Jesus has done. Let me pray. So Father, we want to relive this story because uh, we read in your word and we believe by faith that we are made right, not because of uh, anything that I've done or I've accomplished, but because of the things that you've done through your son, Jesus Christ. And so we remember your death on the cross. We remember your resurrection. And we look forward to the day when you return to set this world right with you, to set the kingdom finally right with you. And so, Lord, we also want to thank you for scriptures. We want to thank you for this man, Paul, whom you used for your glory, whom you used for your kingdom purposes to tell not only the Jews about the good news of Jesus, but also the Gentiles. And perhaps we're standing right here because of his obedience and the fact that he chose to live his redeemed life with you. And so, Lord, in this time, may you be honored as we worship you and we remember you. In Jesus' name, amen.